better prepared to share your gospel of Jesus Christ with the world around us. So God, use this morning. We pray this in your will. Amen. You can grab a seat and check this out. When our next guest woke up from anesthesia, from uh, wisdom tooth surgery, her loving and caring brothers were there to support her and make her believe that the apocalypse had begun. Take a look. The Center for Disease Control in Washington, D.C. has issued a viral outbreak warning. State and local officials have reported cases of high fever, nausea, death, and even cannibalism. Yes? Okay, okay, I'm pulling the driver right now. What else the U.S. Marines? I can't get start going now. Tell Putin, have it a garden hoe isn't what we want. We have guns. Why are you putting garden equipment in a car? This is how you use it. Safety's right here. Pull this. Try it. I need you to see you do it, okay? You gotta hold it up. If anything, hold the weapon. Hold it up. No, hold it up. Hold it up, okay? You got it? Okay, I'll be right back. We can only take one pet. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The cat! Oh. Baby! <laughs> no! You're the dog! He's the worst! He's already dying! You leave him! Okay, 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 I'll forget the cat. Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. We can only take Funfetti or chocolate cake. Which one it's we take? Funfetti. Funfetti. You want Funfetti or chocolate? Why do we need that? Which? No, no, see, this is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Funfetti chocolate. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. <laughs> you know... <laughs> We've all found ourselves in a moment facing what seems to be overwhelming opposition, right? We found ourselves in that moment where, where maybe we had some sort of unbeatable threat approaching us, and yet we found over time, and what she, found, what she finds, I, I promise, I, I can reassure you, uh, that there's no actual threat there, right? Like there's no actual danger that she's in, and we, we've gone through that, right? Where we've been worried about something or concerned about something, we're anxious and we're, we're scared that something's going to come up and it's just going to beat us down or it's going to destroy us, and yet it doesn't, because there was no actual threat in that opposition. Turns out that boys and girls, like, they don't really have cooties, Right? Mostly. I mean, I don't know. There's an except there's a gasp. So maybe there was some recent scientific evidence that I missed. Uh, but, but college, it, college isn't out to get you, right? I know I was like built up. A lot of my high school teachers were telling me about, you better shape up for college or oh my, oh, you gonna, oh. And, and then I get to college, I'm like, no, it's like still the same. And I don't even have to go to class. And then I, I fail my tests. So maybe I should go to class. And well, hey, you know, we get there though. We, we get there. Uh, we have all maybe realized we've been scared about, oh my goodness, like getting a job and and an internship and what do I do post-college but the reality is that I mean there's a lot of businesses out there that want you to work for them right there is actually not a true genuine terrible threat facing you post-graduation you got that Aggie ring you'll be all right just whoop it up a little bit you'll be okay like you'll meet them but we find ourselves still time and again facing the, these oppositions these these threats and, and yet when we actually come to it it's not that bad but when we as believers are walking through life, what we've been promised and guaranteed by Jesus Christ is that we're going to face formidable opposition. That we're going to be facing threats. Because of our alignment with Jesus Christ, we've been promised by Jesus Christ himself that we'll be persecuted. Just as he's being persecuted. 
That's one of the core elements of our gospel, that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake. He was scorned and he was beaten and he was killed. And he looked at his disciples and through scripture he looks at us and he says, that's what you're walking into. That's what you're going to be facing. You're going to be facing persecution. The world is going to hate you just as it hated Jesus Christ. That's what's incredible about Jesus Christ. One of the things that sets him apart from a lot of other major world religions, their kind of ultimate figure. Most of those guys end their lives in triumph and in victory and and lauded and praised with these followers that love them. And yet Jesus Christ, what we see at the end of his ministry is he's, he's beaten, he's scorned, he's killed. Now he doesn't stay dead, but even then he has a core group of about 500 people not the thousands and upon thousands. So what we see in our lives is that same persecution. What we see in our lives is that same attack. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that opposition? Sometimes it, it scares us. Sometimes it can, it can cripple us. But how do we move past it? How do we remain committed to God's purpose to build a community that worships him in the face of that attack that can seem overwhelming? How do we stay on God's track? Over the next two weeks, we're looking at Nehemiah, a person who was aligned with God's heart, who followed God's plan, who formed God's people into a community that would go on to shape their culture. Nehemiah is an incredible person that we can learn so much from because he was a person who looked out and saw brokenness and chose to build in the midst of of that rubble. Last week, what we saw was Nehemiah's alignment with God's people, how he called people in, how he cast a vision, and how they carried it out together. And this morning, what we're going to see is Nehemiah's response to opposition. What does he do in the face of, of a threat? What does he do in the face of attack? How does he continue to trust God with both his attitude and his actions, despite the attacks coming at him? How does he continue to trust God? I'll tell you, spoiler alert, It's because he realized that if God was on his side, who could possibly stand against him? If God is for us, who could possibly stand against us? We open up Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have your Bible or if you want to turn there in a nap. Nehemiah chapter 4. Essentially, a reminder last week, what we saw is uh, he had all these people together. He had, remember, he had finally gone to Jerusalem. He had checked out uh, the, the problem. He understood it. And so he got all these people. He rallied them together. He called them to follow him, to work alongside of him, to rebuild that wall, right? His ultimate purpose was to rebuild a wall, to not just protect his people from danger and, and heal the destruction in their lives, but to ultimately close the distance between them, them and God. That was their ultimate problem, is that they could not worship the Lord in his temple because the walls of their city were broken. And so Nehemiah wanted to close that gap to help eliminate that distance between his people and the Lord. That was their problem that he wanted to fix. And so they've been building this wall, started at the very end of chapter 2. All of chapter 3 describes kind of where the people go and what they're doing. And so chapter 4 kicks up, and in, in the, in this, at this point, the people are in the midst of that work. But we find out that not everybody in the area is gung-ho on this idea. What we see in chapter 4, verse 1, is that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and quite upset. He derided the Jews, and in the presence of his colleagues in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Wahaha, I like to add in my mind. 
Will they be left to themselves? Will they again offer sacrifice? Will they finish this in a day? Can they bring these burnt stones to life again from piles of dust? All right, so Sam Ballot, this guy, in addition to having a super awesome name, he is the governor of Samaria. As best we can tell from some uh, extra biblical sources, he was the governor of Samaria at this time. So he's, a little, he's north of Jerusalem, uh, and, and he doesn't really enjoy, he doesn't like Jews, right? Samaritans, Jews, that whole thing. So he doesn't like the Jews. He says, I, I, I think these guys are idiots. He says, what are they trying to do, right? He starts to kind of tear them apart. He says things like, oh, they're, they're feeble, right? They know they're, they're too weak to do this. He says, uh, you know, they, can, they want to do it by themselves, or were they going to try to offer sacrifices again? Are they going to finish this in a day? He's criticizing, like, their, their optimism. He says, you, you guys are just naive to think you can do this quickly. Are they going to bring these burnt stones to life again from piles of dust? Meaning that they were using old bricks that had been torn down to, to rebuild the wall. And he says, you know, how do, why do you think that's going to work? Like, you're unprepared for this. So in other words, Sam Bosch is sort of lobbing his insults. And then, super awesome, Tobiah jumps in. Okay, one of his lackeys, one of his buddies. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was close by, said, if even a fox were to climb up on what they are building, it would break down their wall of stones. This is like a sick burn. Sick, sick. Like this, I think he would call this savage, is what the proper term is. Because what is he doing? He just jumps in with this, like, sick fox-related burn, right? Like, he's like, oh, yeah, the walls, are so, they're so weak, like, a fox could break it down. <laughs> right, right, right? And he's so excited, right? It's so wonderful to watch Tobiah, uh, I don't know, just live his life, you know? But, but what this is, is these are these guys, and they're lobbing insults at the Jews. In other words, the first kind of way that they're attacking, the first wave of opposition that hits Nehemiah and his people is just insults. Right? It's just being demoralized. It's just, you know, they're, they're met with, in other words, ridicule and disdain in their pursuit of the Lord's work. As they're trying to do what God has set out for them to do, what they're finding is that they are facing ridicule. They're facing disdain. They're facing insults. They're facing people who mock what they're doing. And this is something that we are not immune to. This is something that we as believers in College Station, Texas, in America, in 2016. This is something that we will face. This is something that we have faced. It's something that we will continue to face. Derision, ridicule for being believers, right? Some of it I'm, I'm, I'm cool with, right? Like some of it's kind of good, good-natured, good fun. I, I'm, I'm all about, you know, finding some fun ways to poke a Christianity or views of certain things. You can find uh, some handy-dandy cartoons, these are some of my favorites of where Jesus is meeting people in the real eye, in the real world, uh, and he's giving them terrible advice about what to do with haircuts, uh, or he tells them ridiculous things to tell their congregation about fighting dragons. Lol, Jesus. I don't know. I just, I love it. Lol, Jesus. Sometimes we find other things that, again, are, are kind of good-natured, right? We find things like, uh, this is one of my favorite things in the world, uh, describing the, the Last Supper. And Jesus just knocks everybody on the floor with a card trick. I love that. Like, I like this, right? This is good. This is good nature. This is good fun at the expense of something that maybe otherwise we would get really, really attached to or consider, you know, the little taboo. Like, this is good. This is good natured fun. But then we start to find ourselves crossing a line. We find the culture at large tends to not just stop there. They tend to get a little bit vindictive. Uh, the famous journalist and writer P.J. O'Rourke says that making fun of a born-again Christian is like hunting dairy cows with a high-powered rifle and scope. 
And when I read that, I'm like, well, okay, that's not quite so fun <laughs> anymore, right? We're starting to kind of get to a point where maybe people really do look down on Christians, and, and we found that people really do look down on Christians because they're foolish or, or dumb or, or, or uneducated or, or, or racist or biased or prejudiced or, or whatever it is. And sometimes these attacks are lobbed at Christians themselves. Sometimes it's lobbed at the God that we worship. Suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. And that's what we face. And that breaks my heart. That people would walk through life and see Christianity and see the God that we worship, and yet they have hang-ups, right? Which is, is fair. They have hang-ups, they have concerns, they have doubts. The problem of evil, a loving God and an evil world trying to reconcile those things, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. It's been a debate for thousands of years. How could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow evil in this world? And some people take that, and they decide, well, Christians just must be dumb. Christianity must be terrible. That God must be stupid. We're going to face ridicule. We're going to face disdain. We're going to face insults at ourselves personally, and at the God that we worship. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that first wave of opposition? Well, when Nehemiah heard these insults, when he heard these words, when he heard these things being lobbed at his people, I'll tell you, the very first thing he does is he prays. He prays to God. And he actually offers a very interesting prayer that we'll break down in a minute, I promise, because at first it might be a little uh, intimidating. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Return their reproach on their own head. Reduce them to plunder in a land of exile. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not wipe out their sin from before them, for they have bitterly offended the builders. So Nehemiah begins, his very initial response is with this prayer. This prayer that can seem incredibly harsh. Right? That God would reduce them to plunder, that he would return this reproach, that he wouldn't wipe out their sin. In other words, that he would not forgive them of this trespass. This is a harsh prayer. But what Nehemiah is doing, what we see in this prayer, the, the attitude that we see reflected in these words is one of trusting God. Because if we look back at Jewish history is we look back on the promises that God made, not only to Nehemiah, but to his forefathers, to Abraham, to Moses. And we see the promises that God made to his people, Israel, at that time. What Nehemiah is doing is he's just asking the Lord to follow through on his promises. One scholar sums it up well by saying that the iniquities and sins that were committed by sneering at the work of God had, were committed, sorry, by sneering at the work that God had commanded. The prayer was thus not vindictive, 
because the Jews were insulted. In other words, this wasn't a, a vengeance prayer to get back at them for, for making the Jews feel stupid. It says, but it's because God's work was ridiculed. In other words, Nehemiah is looking at these enemies. He's looking at this opposition, and he recognizes, first and foremost, that these people aren't just enemies of Nehemiah. They're not just enemies of the Jews. They're not just enemies of the people that were working to rebuild a wall. He sees them as enemies of God. Because Nehemiah knows, he's confident, he trusts that he's doing the Lord's work. And so when these people pop up and they present this opposition, he says, God, I want your work to continue. God, I want your will to be done. I want to trust you to deliver Israel from their enemies, as you've always promised. God, I'm going to trust you to rebuild Jerusalem, as you've promised. He says, God, I'm going to trust you to bring about justice in this moment. Nehemiah believed what's explained to us later by Paul in Romans 12, that that vengeance belongs to the Lord. So Nehemiah trusts God to bring justice to the situation. He trusts God that he's in control of this. He says, God, I just want you to follow through on what you've already promised. And so they rebuilt the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. And the people were enthusiastic in their work. See, Nehemiah recognized that God's work will always have enemies. It always will. God's work will always have enemies. God's people will always face opposition. But we can trust that God will provide justice when and where it's needed. So we don't have to take that upon ourselves. Nehemiah didn't have to lob insults back at Sam Ballot. He didn't have to talk about what a fox would do to to buy his wall or whatever. He didn't feel the need to to launch back to, to make a defense or to explain what they're doing. No, he just trusted that God was in control. Now what's interesting, what's important for us to note is that not everyone who questions you is going to necessarily be God's enemy, right? Nehemiah had a very clear mandate. He was incredibly clear and knew with absolute clarity, wonderful vision that that he was in the Lord's work. And that's not always going to be us, right? Not everyone who opposes us is necessarily God's enemy. There's going to be times where maybe we're just taking something personally that we don't need to. Maybe we're going to be feeling victimized or, or we need to be especially careful when we're opposed in something or confronted by a fellow believer, Right? Just because someone's questioning what you're doing or, or the plan that you've made or, or whatever you want to go about, the job you want to take, the person you're dating, if someone's questioning that in your life, especially if they're a believer, you don't need to just jump to the conclusion that, oh, they're an enemy of God. Right? That's going to be, that's going to not bode well for you. If a roommate comes up to you and questions your decision to turn the bathroom into a dolphin sanctuary, then... You, don't, you might not want to stop and listen and take their counsel before you start praying that they'd be plundered by their enemies. You know, like we don't want to just jump right to that. What we see in this moment is Nehemiah trusting that the Lord's will would come, to, come true. It would come to pass. So that needs to be our attitude. That when we face those oppositions, when we hear those words, when, when we're questioned or confronted by that friend or that classmate, that family member, about our beliefs, about the God that we follow. Ultimately, we need to trust that God is in control. And we need to be praying for those people. Because what we see in the life of Christ is when he is attacked, when he's opposed, he's working under a new promise. 
not a promise that, that God would bring wrath and, and bring destruction upon the enemies of Israel. Instead, he says, you know what you can do? You know what we can do? Is we can pray for our enemies. We can love them. Because by the power of Jesus Christ, all might be saved. So we should pray that their souls would be convicted by the Holy Spirit. That they would come to know the Lord. That's our prayer. Not that they'd be vanquished, but that they'd be saved. And we can only pray that if we're trusting that God's truly in control. We need to see prayer as our primary defense, in other words. It's not our last, result, last resort. Many times when we are in a tough situation or, you know, there's been something in a family member's life or, or a friend's life, sometimes, you know, we get to that moment where we say something along the lines of, well, you know, all, all we can really do right now is pray. And it's sad because a lot of times when we say that, what we're saying is almost like a, a defeat statement, almost as like this kind of sad, kind of bummer that, oh, I guess all we can really do is pray. And that's not what we see in Scripture at all. Prayer is our primary defense. It's our primary action. It's not the last resort. It's not like just the thing that you do when you can't do anything else. Prayer should be our number one priority in, in every situation, in every opposition. We can be praying for these people that God would move, that God would change people's hearts, their lives, and then we get to work. Right, Nehemiah prayed that God would oversee this, that God would bring justice, that God would fall through on his promises, and then they got to work. They just continued to be faithful in what they were doing. They built up the wall. They built it up halfway all around the city, which is really amazing. Right? It's not done. It's not this big celebratory moment, but they're making progress. And that's what's crucial is that we need to recognize that even in the midst of opposition, one of the best things you can do in that moment, besides praying that the Lord would be sovereign, besides trusting that God is in control— you just continue to be faithful in what you feel called to do. One of the things that I've heard in seminary multiple times, which is great, and yet so many people fail to let it sink in, is that God calls us to be faithful, not to be famous. Right? God wants us to be faithful men and women who move where he calls us, to do what he calls us to do, to minister, to serve the people around us, to follow his revealed commands in Scripture. He wants us to be faithful. And yet so many times we get caught up in wanting to be famous and wanting to have that big celebratory moment to start that one organization that changes the entire world or the thing that does this, that makes a name for ourselves. So many times we get caught up in that, thinking that's the only way I can make an impact for the Lord is if I can reach a million people or if I can speak to a thousand people or if I can do these things that change so many lives. But it's not the case. There are a chosen few that will get to that level of notoriety, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. It's not an enviable position at all. But what God calls us to ultimately is to be faithful with what's, with what's right in front of us. Be faithful where he's placed us. And that's the Christian life. Continued faithfulness. Building up that wall. Day by day. Brick by brick. So my question I mean, for us is how do we respond to insults and the ridicule? Do we trust God's plan? Do we trust that he'll bring justice where it needs to be brought? How do we respond in the midst of that attack? And unfortunately for Nehemiah and unfortunately for many of us, ridicule and disdain Man, that's not the only opposition we're going to face. It's certainly not the only opposition that Nehemiah faced. 
what we'll see is that at first, maybe the, the surrounding, the enemies, they start lobbing these insults. They start saying these things, and yet it quickly escalates. We read into verse 7, we see that Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and all the people of Ashdod heard that the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem had moved ahead, that the, breacher, that the breaches had begun to be closed. They were very angry. So all of them conspired together to move with armed forces against Jerusalem to create a disturbance in it. Nehemiah's enemies quickly see, okay, it's not working. We can't just demoralize them with our words. And so they begin to plan a secret attack. And they conspire together to, to quickly and, and quietly and secretly move in and create a disturbance. In other words, to either break down that wall or to kill people. Maybe a little bit of both. They want to destroy the work and they want to destroy the workers. That's their goal. And they're doing it secretly, right? They're trying to plan it and they're conspiring to create this disturbance. And then this is my favorite part. And then they started boasting, right? They started boasting before they are aware or anticipate anything. We will come in among them and kill them. We will bring this work to a halt. And so it happened that the Jews who were living near them came and warned us repeatedly about all the schemes that they were plotting against us. So this is great because that secret plan is immediately like not secret at all because they get so caught up in their own genius and their own perfect, perfect, super secret plans that then they start to advertise it like, oh man, can you believe how awesome that secret plan is that we have where we're going to totally destroy everybody? Oh my gosh, go tell everyone at the well. And so the Jews that live near them, they hear about it and they're like, oh, well, I should probably give Nehemiah a heads up. And so they go and they warn them against this super secret plan. Right, so immediately, the, this plan of attack that they have uh, is revealed. But it can still be devastating, right? Even if Nehemiah and his friends, even, even if Nehemiah and the workers see it coming, it can still be devastating. Anything worth accomplishing is worth attacking, right? This is what we see right here. And, and watching something that you've worked to build, watching your work be destroyed, can be truly devastating, right? In this moment, what we see is Nehemiah is faced with the possibility that all his work would be done away with, that it would all be wiped away. And that can just devastate a person. This is the Leaning Tower of Pisa on our campus here. And uh, the person that's built is right around the corner here. Brian is a 1990 graduate of Northern, and uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about this amazing structure. Well, it's, as you can see, the, uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, um, it's about 12,000 blocks. It took over two weekends to build, and um, I'm really excited because next week uh, the Guinness Book of World Records team are going to come to evaluate it, and I'm really looking forward to that. Well, that must be pretty exciting. What other projects have you done? Um, just after 9-11, I did the Empire State Building, and last Christmas I did the Rockefeller Center. That's great. Maybe you can uh, tell me. Oh, it's a little embarrassing. I should turn this off. Uh, you're going to have to excuse me. I'm, I've got to take this. So. Okay. Really sorry. Hello? Oh. oh, geez, Brian. No, not, I don't know what to say. Brian, no, right? <laughs> Man, there's just something in that moment, right? All of our little Jenga hearts just fell apart in that moment. Why? Because watching your work be destroyed is devastating. And that's what his enemies want to do. That's what Nehemiah's enemies are planning. They want to destroy all of the work that's been done. But more than that, they say, we don't only want to destroy the work that's been accomplished. We want to destroy the workers themselves. 
Because that's the reality of gaining that notoriety. When you get to that point where maybe you do accomplish something great, but maybe that is in your future. Maybe that is the Lord's plan for you. That'd be, that'd be awesome, right? But when you accomplish something great, I'll tell you, time and again, I've seen it without fail, that the target on your back gets bigger and bigger, that with great accomplishment always comes great attack. A few weeks ago, uh, there were some missionaries uh, who were murdered. Right? We didn't get, in, didn't get a ton of press. It was kind of overshadowed by a few other things in the news cycle, and now everyone's concerned about prints and all that stuff, which is fine. But there were four translators that worked for Wycliffe that, that were murdered. Wycliffe is, a, is an organization, a Christian sending missions organization, uh, where they essentially, their goal is to translate the Bible into every language, for every tribe, for every tongue, for every nation. That's their goal, to translate the scripture so that all could read it. And so they have this incredibly large, they have over 6,500 staff members that are spread out across over 75 countries right now. And what happened was there was a group, there was a, a group of translators just south of Cairo, and they were working on eight different translations. They were working on eight translations of Scripture uh, for different people groups. And just one day, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, some people showed up with guns. Um, and they just started shooting up the place. They started shooting at people. Started trying to destroy their computers and things like that. They wound up shooting and killing two uh, of the workers. And then there were two others that were killed because they were uh, deflecting, bludgeoning blows from the radicals' spent weapons as they were trying to cover the lead translator. So the lead translator huddled up on the floor. These two other workers got on top of them, and they were beaten to death because the attackers were out of bullets. But they saved the lead translator, and they saved a few hard drives so that all the work was not actually lost. Four people murdered. Why? because they were bringing about a great accomplishment, because they were doing the Lord's work. And what's so incredible in that moment is that May Greenleaf, one of the prayer coordinators for Wycliffe, she put out this response, having worked with these people, having been involved in this organization, having seen these translators, she said that, you know what, they have vowed to redouble their efforts to get those translations done, to get them completed, because when they see opposition like this, they know they're doing something great. What kind of vision does that take? In her official response, she also asked people to pray. Again, as our first defense, not a last resort, she says, we need to please ask the Lord to mend the hearts and wounds of the translation team who have gone through this horrible ordeal. Pray that God will strengthen their minds and their hearts and their bodies to be able to continue the translation of the gospel for their people. Because many of these translators, right, they're, they're from those tribes. They're from those tongues. They're from those people. They're from those nations. They're working on behalf of their own people to bring the gospel to their neighbors, to their family members, to their friends, to their co-workers. Just pray that God would strengthen them. And she says, pray with me also for the killers. Pray for, the, for these whose hearts are so hard. Pray the Lord will open their eyes to what they've done. Please ask the Lord to meet them, each one, right where they are, and pray that he will show himself merciful, that they will know his forgiveness and his love and his peace. If we're committed to the Lord's work, we're going to face opposition. 
we're all going to face insults and derision and ridicule. It's inevitable. Some of us, it'll escalate beyond that. It's a physical attack. For the rest of us, it'll still escalate, maybe not into the physical attacks, but there will be spiritual opposition. And when we face those things, when that attack comes, when that opposition presents itself, I pray that we can respond like that team in Cairo. I pray that we can respond like Nehemiah in chapter 4. He says, in the face of that opposition, in hearing about those plans, they prayed to our God and stationed a guard to protect against them both day and night. So immediately upon hearing about these attacks, immediately upon knowing that his people were facing incredible opposition, he says, let's pray, first and foremost. And then let's defend ourselves. And he reminds the people, he says, I stationed people at the lower places behind the wall in the exposed places. I stationed the people by families with their swords and spears and bows. And when I had made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awesome Lord and fight on behalf of your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your families. So this is what's beautiful about Nehemiah's response. He says, we're going to pray the Lord and we're going to trust that God's in control, right? We saw that in the, in the, immediately upon the very first sign of opposition through that insult, through the ridicule, through, through the derision. He says, we're going to trust that the Lord's in control. But he says, but we're also going to work, right? We're not just going to work to rebuild this wall. We're also going to work to defend ourselves. He doesn't just say, hey, the Lord's going to protect us, so don't worry about it. Get a good night's rest. Turn off the nightlight. You don't need it. Instead, he says, no, we're going to be stationed in the weak places. We're going to be strategic in this. We're going to trust our great and awesome Lord, but we're also going to work to build defense because he knew that God would use their defense because he knew that the Lord was, again, calling them to be faithful, not foolish, but faithful, trusting that God would use their efforts, would use their defense to protect them. He says, this is what we're called to do. And he's trusting that the Lord's work is going to be done. He's trusting that the Lord's work would be accomplished. Even if they died in the process, Nehemiah knew that death couldn't separate, couldn't separate him from his great and awesome God. He says, we can trust, Lord, we can, we can guard ourselves, but we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because even if we are killed, even if it comes to that, right? Nehemiah never says like, hey, no one's going to die. Everyone's going to be okay. He never says that. He doesn't know that. But he does know, he can say that they don't have to be afraid. Why? Because even if it comes to their own loss of life, even if it's not just a loss of work, but it's a loss of their very lives, they still have a great and awesome Lord. He knew what we know, that even death is not the end of us. We know what Nehemiah didn't know, that it was by the work of Jesus Christ who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake. It's through that work, it's through that death, it's through that resurrection that we might have life, that we don't have to fear death so that we can all be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. A gift offered to all of humanity. Death isn't the end for us, so we don't have to fear it. We can be confident in our great and awesome Lord. A few weeks ago, my wife and I left our daughter, Charlotte, who's 16 months old. We left her uh, for kind of like a long week, and we left her for three nights. Um, it was our very first time to leave her for an extended period of time. We left her with my parents. Uh, they enjoyed things like bubbles uh, and baby crocs. Apparently that's a thing. So uh, they, 
had a good time, right? You can tell, you just see the, the joy and excitement on her face. They just had so much fun while we were gone. But we were worried, right? Beforehand, we were worried. We were like, well, this is our first time doing this extended time away from her. Like, is she going to be okay? Is she going to be all right? But she was fine. Like, she was totally fine. Uh, she hung out. She did the bubble thing. She got all, you know, it was wonderful. She handled it very, very well. And, and yet we were still really excited at the end of our trip to come home and see her, right? We had a lot of fun, but, but we were ready to, to see her at the end of it. We were like, oh, man, this is going to be great. Oh, I'm so excited to see our daughter again. It's going to be so wonderful. It's going to be this magical moment. We'll probably, like, drive up to the end of the street, and she'll, like, see us through a window, and she'll, like, punch through the window, and she'll, like, run down the street and jump into our arms or something, right? Like, it's going to be something magical and, and, and wonderful, and we'll remember it. We'll all be crying for, for joy for hours, and we just knew it was going to be this beautiful Disney reunion moment. And when we walked in through our front door, when we saw her for the very first time after being gone for three nights, we said, Charlotte! And she had no response whatsoever. Just, just kind of like that, but less, less emotional than that moment right there watching Bubbles. We might as well have been like, I don't know, boring Bubbles. Like we... Got nothing from her. No, nothing. No reaction at all. And so it wasn't quite necessarily the Disney moment that we were expecting and desiring, but it is actually the ideal response for her at this age. Uh, So we can take some solace in that, right? Some comfort knowing that that's actually a good thing. Because the fact that she didn't react, the, the fact that she didn't just like break down into tears and start singing a song and learn how to speak, apparently, to sing that song was because she wasn't surprised. She wasn't shocked to see us again. She was 100% confident that we'd return. That's why she honestly couldn't even care less. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'm going to keep telling myself. Because she was so secure. She feels so safe and secure in our relationship. She knows, man, it's going to be okay. That's why we can leave her at the nursery. That's why we can leave her with babysitters. That's why I left her this morning with a babysitter. Because... She knows we're going to come back. She's confident in our relationship. Nehemiah can tell his people, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because we can trust. We can be confident in our great and powerful Lord. So so in the meantime, as we trust him, let's guard our weaknesses. Again, many of us aren't going to necessarily face physical attack. Praise the Lord for that. Many of us will we'll, we'll never get to that point, but we will still face attacking that our work could be destroyed. People could undermine our efforts to build a community or to work for the Lord. We can still be crippled by spiritual attack. We can be overcome by guilt or, or by shame or apathy or anger or whatever it is. Those things can still attack us. Those things can still sideline us. So we need to be cautious. We need to be careful and we need to be guarding our weak points. Just as Nehemiah put his people in the weak points in the wall, we need to be conscious and, and aware of what are our weaknesses. When my wife and I, we've done a premarital group the last few semesters called Merge. It's super awesome. You should consider it at some point when you're engaged or seriously dating. And what it is, it's eight weeks where you just sit down with a couple. You're in a small group setting, and you learn about, I mean, what are, what are kind of the best practices when it comes to marriage? What are some principles that we can be aware of? What are some expectations we should set? How do we move towards marriage well? And how do we, you know, be a married couple well? And so one of the things that we talk about a lot is conflict and communication, right? Those are core things that your marriage is built upon a foundation of communication and conflict. And so one of the guiding principles in that that I love is an acronym, HALT, right? 
H-A-L-T, halt. And what it is, is when you get to it, we're like, okay, look, here's the thing. When you're having an argument, when you want to have conflict, or you need to have a, maybe a heated discussion, here's the thing. You shouldn't have that argument. You shouldn't have that discussion when you are hungry, angry, uh, lost, or tired, or late. Halt a lull. Uh, we'll just put the L's together. So if you're hungry, angry, late, lost, or tired. So that's just best practice. Just avoid Avoid having serious conversations in those moments. Why? Because in those moments, you're vulnerable, right? You're like super hungry. Unless you could be, even one of our couples, like the very next week they came to us, they're like, oh my gosh, that was like so good. We literally had to like halt. We said halt <laughs> this past week because I was, this is the guy talking. He was like, I was hungry, late, and tired. <laughs> I was halt. So we needed, to, we needed to stop, right? Like we needed to wait and postpone that conversation because they were aware of their weaknesses, right? They were aware of their vulnerabilities. We need to recognize that, hey, there's going to be times where we are extra vulnerable to spiritual attack. We're going to be vulnerable when we're tired or when we're stressed or when we're overconfident, when we're fearful, whatever it is. You know yourself. You know when you're vulnerable. We need to be aware of that and we need to cover those things. We need to defend in those places. And what Nehemiah does, he used not just himself. He wasn't like, okay, I'm just going to make the rounds. I'm going to run around really fast and cover all the spots. What does he do? He uses the community as coverage. He allows everyone's strengths and weaknesses to overlap. This is why it's so important to have diversity in your community. So that you have different people that have different strengths and different weaknesses so that you can cover each other. It's so easy. I was just talking with a guy who just graduated this past week. He's telling me about how he was really, this was a completely separate conversation, but he was looking back on college because he's about to graduate. And he was like, you know what? I realized is that all of my friends look like me, talk like me, think like me, and act like me. And he said, you know, that's, that's really too bad <laughs> in hindsight. I kind of missed an opportunity. That's what we fall into. And without that diversity, here's the thing. A lot of us are going to share the exact same vulnerabilities, which is okay, but it's not necessarily best. We need to be aware of those vulnerabilities. We should lean on each other for support. So my question for us is, I mean, who can guard alongside of us? Who can guard with us? How do we as a community respond to attack? Do we as a community trust God's protection? Do we as a community prepare a defense? We've said over the last few weeks, this is my last time to say it, but our encouragement, I mean, my encouragement, our staff's encouragement to you is that we would use this week as a special opportunity to do the Lord's work, to fulfill the Lord's purpose for our lives, to build a community that worships him. So we've been saying it and saying it and saying it, that we would find some moment this week to bring people together for the sake of building community. It doesn't have to be this big, huge come to Jesus moment. We're going to listen to Billy Graham for 10 hours and my gosh, you're going to like it. Like it needs to just be... It can just be a hangout. It can be going to see a movie together. It can be a meal. It, it can be a game. It can be an activity. We had a few options that we presented for you guys uh, last week of things that you could just come and join us. As this Friday, they're playing disc golf at a place. And on Tuesday, they're having a craft night where you can bring crafts or, or you can just make cookies if you don't like crafts. That's me. And so then we can, we can have uh, next Sunday, so not this Sunday, but next Sunday, we're having a backyard bash with just games and activities out here at Anderson Park. We're going to bring in snow cones somehow. It's, I don't know. I've heard it works, and so I'm excited about it. Uh, we have these opportunities that you can join us in, or you can just do your own thing. I, I'd encourage you to consider what is your own thing that you can do. 
How can you bring people in just to build relationship? With that classmate, that workmate, the lab partner, maybe that roommate that you've been living with and yet you still don't really know very well. What can we do this week to move towards the Lord's purpose of building community that worships him and recognize there's going to be opposition this week. There's going to be opposition in this small attainable task. There's going to be opposition as you graduate, as you move on, and as you try to pursue the Lord post-college. There's going to continue to be opposition. So who are you walking alongside of? How are you trusting the Lord to use your plans? How are you trusting the Lord in the face of that opposition? Do you recognize and realize the fact that all of those things, they might seem intimidating, but yet they, held, they are nothing compared to the power of the Lord, that we have nothing to fear, that Jesus Christ overcame this world, so nothing in this world can overcome us. I'd encourage you this, past, this final week of April, that as you are hopefully having those moments and, and, and bringing people together to build that community, I, I would really love to hear from you. I would love to know just kind of what happens, what, what went down. It doesn't have to be an amazing story. It doesn't have to be like, 30 people all became Christians because of this. And, you know, because I just like, I gave out free Twizzlers and boom. Like, it doesn't have to be anything like that. That would be amazing. But it doesn't have to be it. It doesn't have to be a crazy conversion story. It doesn't have to be anything super nuts. It doesn't even have to be super detailed. You don't have to give me like a play-by-play of everything that happened. But I would just love to hear just maybe briefly, what is it that that took place? How did you see the Lord move this week as you're seeking to bring people together to build community? So please, 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 send me an email. Just a brief, it can take you like two minutes. Just give me a heads up. Just let me know. You know, what happened this week? How did the Lord use you? How did the Lord work through your plans for his purpose to build community that worships him? And remember, all of it hinges on prayer. So I would encourage you, even if you don't have an opportunity for yourself this week to bring that about, you can still be praying. Please be praying for the rest of us as we're engaged in these moments, in these community moments. Please be praying for those people that maybe you'll just reach out to next week or, or the next. Continue to pray that the Lord would move because without him, man, none of this is possible. So let's go to him now. Lord, we, we thank you that you have chosen to use us, God, that you've chosen to work through us, that God, you have promised to protect us. God, we thank you for that. Lord, we recognize that you're so great and you're so powerful. That God, that there's nothing in this world that, that frightens you or intimidates you. So God, give us that confidence. Lord, let us trust in, in your might and in your power. Lord, let us live lives that are reflective of, of Nehemiah, where we pray diligently, where we work faithfully, where we see brokenness in our midst and choose to build in the midst of it. So if you would take a moment right now and just pray that the Lord would create opportunity in your life, particularly in your life to to do his work, to work for his purpose, to build community. It could be this week. It could be uh, sometime in the future. But just ask the Lord to use you for his purpose. Ask God right now.